for those of you who might be visiting, we're continuing with the sermon series through the book of Revelation today. Uh, but before we do that, let's bow together in prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth planted deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace we'll stand on your promises. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. On the 22nd of November, 1963, a play took place in a theatre in America. It was a satire, and the actors and actresses did all sorts of strange things on stage. Uh, one of the characters arrived for a job interview with a radio held up to his ear, and during the course of the play, he put the radio down on the stage and let the music and the programs play on in the background while the rest of the play continued. But that night, there was a sudden interruption in the radio program. A voice came over the radio with a live news bulletin. We interrupt this program to announce that today, the American president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. The audience gasped, and the actor immediately ran over to the radio to switch it off. But it was too late. In one sentence, the reality of the outside world had shattered the artificial world of the play. Suddenly, whatever action took place on stage seemed superficial and irrelevant. Christians living in the province of Asia in 95 AD were constantly confronted with powerful images of the Roman version of the world. Buildings, paintings, banners, rituals, festivals, all provided powerful images of Roman power and the splendor of pagan religion. Remember that this little group of Christians were a persecuted minority uh, their belief in a crucified and resurrected Messiah was mocked and belittled. They faced death for their faith, and they were constantly bombarded by this message, Caesar is Lord. And we too are confronted daily with powerful messages through the news, through television programs, movies, books, posters, the internet, that tell us what real life looks like of how the real world works. And the book of Revelation did for those early believers and will do for us 
what the radio in that New York theater did for the theatergoers. The Lord Jesus draws back the curtain and gives us a vision of how the world really is and will be. Through this book, the real world of heaven breaks in to our artificial world. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5 and let's tune ourselves in to this unseen reality that is taking place right now and that one day we will see. Revelation chapter 5 from verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. So Revelation chapter 5 is really scene 2 of a much larger vision that stretches from chapter 4 through chapter 6. And last week we had a look at scene 1, which is really a summary of the Old Testament picture of God, the Almighty, the Creator and the Sustainer of all things, seated on a throne that is personal, powerful, pure, permanent, and perfect. Revelation chapter 5 is now scene 2 of this vision, and it really summarizes the New Testament picture of God. 
And as we go through these verses again in greater detail, I think we'll see, if we haven't already, that this vision is equally astounding and awe-inspiring and ultimately leads us to worship. We'll do what we did last week. We're going to take a step forward and look at just some of the detail of the vision before stepping back and looking at it as a whole and considering what it might mean for our day-to-day lives. So in verse 1, the vision moves from this great picture of God on his throne and it zooms in on the right hand of God. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The scroll represents God's plan and purpose in human history. And we know that because in the third scene of this, in chapter 6, when the seals are broken in heaven, things take place on earth. So as one commentator puts it, the scroll contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. And the scroll in the hand of God re-emphasizes what we saw last week, that God is in control. There is a plan for the universe. There is a plan for your life and for my life. And it's held firmly in the hand of Almighty God. The scroll is written on on both sides, which wasn't the usual practice, but it symbolizes the fact that God's plan is complete and perfect. There's no place for any alterations, any additions or subtractions or modifications. It's complete. And the seven seals, seven being the number of perfection, also emphasize the fact that God's plan and purpose for the universe, for your life, for my life, are perfect and complete. But because the scroll is sealed, its contents are also hidden. No one can understand or articulate God's plan in history. And that's true not only of world history, but also of our lives. We don't particularly like it, but it's true. Who knows what a year, or a month, or a week, or even a day holds for us. You wake up one morning and at the end of the day you're without a job, or without a car, or without sight, or without a husband, or a wife, or with a diagnosis. And the meaning of all of this is hidden from us. God's God's plan is hidden. But the seals on the scroll also mean that the plan cannot be carried out until the seals are broken. And who is able to do that? That, in fact, is the very next question that is asked. In verse 2, John sees a mighty angel who shouts in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is wise enough to understand the plan of God and strong enough to bring the plan to completion? And the answer is in verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. The Canadian pastor Daryl Johnson says these are humbling words. We can build bridges and television sets. We can build spaceships and stealth bombers. We can create and assemble intricate electronic systems. We can write moving poetry, paint beautiful pictures, produce soul-stirring films. We can conceive and beget babies. 
but none of us can discover and then implement the secret of history. Which causes John great distress. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John isn't simply weeping here because if the scroll isn't opened, then the plan of God won't be revealed and he can't write the rest of the book of Revelation. It's more important than that. John realizes that if no one can open the scroll, then God's plan will not be able to be carried out. The elder says to John, verse 5, Do not weep. See. There's that great command again that we saw last week. See. Behold, look, we're urged to see with the eyes of faith what we usually cannot see. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. These are terms from messianic prophecies from Genesis 49, that the scepter wouldn't uh, depart from the tribe of Judah, the lion. And from Isaiah 11, that the root of David would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with his breath, to slay the wicked. In other words, this is a triumphant picture of a ruling and reigning Messiah. And so John turns around to look. What do you expect him to see? Surely a lion. But no, verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. One New Testament scholar says that this is perhaps the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in literature. We look to see a lion and instead we see a lamb. The Lion of Judah is a lamb, and not even an ordinary lamb. There are two Greek words translated lamb in the New Testament. The one usually used is amnos, which refers to an adult sheep. But the word John uses is anion, which means little lamb. There is nothing so unfrightening and disarming and approachable as a little lamb. And not even just a little lamb, but a lamb looking as if it has been slain, slaughtered, with its throat slit and blood across its white wool. As we've seen in this series, the symbols, the visual pictures that the book of Revelation give us come from the other 65 books of the Bible. And when John's readers heard the word lamb, those scripture passages would have come flooding back to their minds. We don't have time to look at them all or unpack them all in detail. Let me just read to you what, have, what would have come to their minds. Genesis 22. A father and son are walking up Mount Moriah. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Exodus 12, the night before God will rescue his people from being slaves in Egypt. Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. 
The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. The members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Leviticus 5 When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, they must confess in what way they have sinned. As a penalty for the sin they've committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Isaiah 53 He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Many centuries later, John chapter 1, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lion of Judah is Jesus, the Lamb of God who lays down his life for his sheep. But lest there be any misunderstanding here, this vision of a little lamb looking as if it has been slaughtered is not a picture of something that is pitiful or pathetic or contemptible. We're told that the lamb is standing. The crucified Jesus is the risen Jesus. And where is he standing? In the center of the throne. But but wait a minute, last week we saw that the Almighty, the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe sits in the center of the throne. How can the Lamb be at the center unless he has equal status as Almighty God because he is God? We're also told, um, on the next slide we can see it, that the Lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Does the Lord Jesus really look like that? No, no, remember, this is a, a symbolic word picture. In, in the Bible, horns are a symbol for strength. The lamb has seven horns. In other words, perfect strength, what theologians would call omnipotence. Also in biblical language, eyes are a symbol for wisdom. The lamb has seven eyes, unlimited wisdom and penetrating insight, what theologians would call omniscience. And just to mention that also in verse 6, we're told that these eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. In other words, God's Holy Spirit in all of his perfection. And so here we've got this awesome Trinitarian picture, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, seated on the throne at the center of everything. And again, we see something of the power of the Lamb in verse 7. Where John writes, he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He just took it right out of the hand of God because he's worthy to do so. But notice something important here. Although the lamb is God, it's not his status that makes him worthy to open the scroll, but rather what he has done. 
In verses 9 and 10, the four living creatures and the 24 elders that we were introduced to last week sing a new song. The song is new because the revelation of what God has done is new. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. We'll unpack some of that in a moment. But this new song then begins a great wave of praise that emanates from the throne in concentric circles because the four living creatures sing worthy, the 24 elders sing worthy. Next in verses 11 and 12, I looked and heard the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 singing worthy. And finally, in verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We've stepped forward then and looked at some of the details of the vision. Let's step back and look at it in its entirety and see what it might mean practically for us today. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that at the center of everything, of all human history, past, present, at the center of the entire universe stands the Lamb who was slain and is now alive again. The cross is not just another historical event. You know, great moments in human history. The Wright brothers discover the secret of flight, the invention of the internal combustion engine, the release of Nelson Mandela, the death of Jesus on the cross. No, the cross is at the very center of human history and destiny. And the cross at the center reveals four things. Firstly, the cross at the center reveals suffering. At the center of everything, there is a lamb who has been slain and who knows suffering. What a comfort to those original readers who were facing persecution and death for their faith. Just going back to Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. We're not alone in our suffering. Jesus still bears the marks of the worst suffering anybody has ever endured. And whatever you may be going through today, Jesus knows and understands that from the inside of your experience. Have you been betrayed by someone? Maybe even someone who's been the closest to you? So was he. Have you been lonely? So has he. Have you been rejected and misunderstood and sidelined? So has he. Have you been destitute? So has he. Have you been abused? So has he. Have you lost someone close to you? So has he. Have you faced death? So has he. And in your darkest time, have you found that your prayers have gone unanswered? So were his. May this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but yours be done. His prayer went unanswered. The cup was not taken away. And from that darkness have you cried out, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? 
so has he. Jesus has been all the places you have been. He's been in the darkness you are in right now and even more. The cross reveals the suffering of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Secondly, the cross at the center reveals redemption. This word redemption comes to us from the slave market. You would buy back a slave. You would redeem a slave by paying a ransom, the price for a slave. Look at verse 9 again. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Like the Israelites in Egypt, we are slaves. Uh, The journalist Malcolm Muggridge put it this way several years ago. He said, in the dark little dungeon of our own ego, we are prisoners. Prisoners of our self-centeredness, prisoners of our guilt, prisoners of the wrath of God that is upon us because of our inexcusable guilt. Like slaves, we're helpless to do anything to save ourselves. But God has rescued us and brought us to himself through the death of his son Jesus for us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus has done for us what otherwise we would have had to do for ourselves. He's paid the price for our sin. In 1 Peter chapter 1 we read, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but rather with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. One writer puts it this way, The lamb goes to the cross because of us. The lamb goes to the cross for us. The Lamb goes to the cross instead of us. He who knew no sin became sin for me, that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Look, there he stands, the sacrifice, the substitute, the satisfaction for sin, in the center of the throne. And the image then is, come. It's safe to come. You're welcome to come. Come and receive forgiveness. Come and receive the life that I want to give to you. Jesus takes my messed up, horrible life upon himself on the cross and instead he offers me the perfect life that he lived. And have you received that redemption for yourself today? And if not, what's preventing you from just coming before God in prayer and asking him for his forgiveness and the new life in him? But thirdly, the cross at the center reveals the power of sacrificial love. As we saw, the the great mind-bending image in this passage is found in verses 5 and 6. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. The lion doesn't triumph by being a lion. The lion triumphs by being a sacrificial lamb. As one writer puts it, instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. 
It seems so foolish. It seems so weak. But remember, the lamb has seven horns, all power. And he has seven eyes, all wisdom. It turns out, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. On the cross, all of the might of the Roman Empire, all of the influence of the Jewish religious system, all of the power of hell was hurled against the Lord Jesus. And he seems so weak and pitiful on the cross. But what the cross did was to take all of that, that power and use it against itself to its own defeat. The power that triumphs is the weakness of sacrificial love. But here we don't simply see the power of sacrificial love, but also the pattern of sacrificial love. The lion overcomes through the power of sacrificial love. That's the good news, but there's some bad news for us. Verse 10, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That doesn't sound too bad. We reign. Not only will we reign with Christ, but we reign with him right now. But how does Christ reign? Christ reigns from the cross. And if we wish to reign with him, we too have to lay down our lives in sacrificial love. First Peter chapter 2, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To quote Daryl Johnson again, God overcomes by suffering. Suffering with and for the world. I wish I could tell you he reigns like a lion, but he doesn't. He's chosen a different way. To overcome evil by walking right into it. Confronting it with the truth. And if need be, taking all that evil dishes out and thereby diffusing it. Jesus Christ reigns from the cross. And we reign with him in the same way. Not as lions, but as lambs. The cross is not only the ground of our salvation, it is also the pattern of our salvation, the way of our salvation. The cross is the throne from which he reigns and he calls us to join him on his throne. He calls us to take up our cross daily. It is the way he makes the kingdom of heaven come on earth. Listen to the cross-shaped sacrificial love that Jesus calls us to. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Forgive 70 times 7. Be the servant of all. It seems like foolishness, weakness. But Jesus said, whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life in this world, for me, for the gospel, for others, will keep it. And so when I'm teased at school because I'm a Christian and I don't retaliate, I'm keeping my life by losing it. When I stick it out in a difficult marriage, not, not an abusive one, a difficult one, when I keep on acting in love, even when I'm not receiving any love in return, I'm keeping my life by losing it. 
when I don't walk out on a difficult relationship, but keep on protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering, I'm keeping my life by losing it. When those early Christians, and Christians in Afghanistan today, are put to death for their faith, they are gaining their life, even as they are losing it. Which brings us to the final application. The cross at the center reveals victory. Verse 5 again. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. To quote Daryl Johnson one last time, the church enters the battle with evil, not in order to win, but because Jesus Christ has already won. The major battle of the war has already been fought. It's just a matter of time until the war is ended. The final outcome is not up for grabs. Nothing can dethrone the enthroned lamb. Nothing can finally thwart his will to bring about a whole new creation. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. One New Testament scholar reminds us, Those who think Satan rages because he is invincible will give up in despair. But those who recognize that Satan rages on earth because he's already lost in heaven and is now desperate have reason to resist him. Confident that God will prevail. You and I can walk towards persecution, even death. We can walk towards evil in our society. We can walk towards a difficult relationship with redeeming intent, knowing that Christ has already won. I heard about a young man who'd just become a Christian. And he wasn't a very well-educated man, and the pastor gave him a New Testament to read. And a couple of weeks later, the man came back to the pastor, and this pastor was quite surprised and horrified to discover that this young man had started at the wrong end of the Bible. He'd started reading the book of Revelation. And the pastor was concerned that the man might not understand everything in the book, and so he gently suggested that he stop reading the book of Revelation and start reading something simpler, maybe the Gospel of Mark instead. The man said... I've read it. I've read it from beginning to end, and we're going to win. (laughs) Much in the book he didn't understand, but he got the central point. We're going to win. At the center of everything today is the Lamb upon the throne. He understands our suffering because he's been there himself. He has redeemed us. He invites us to come to him. His sacrificial love is the power of God and the pattern for our lives, and we can join him in his sufferings because he's triumphed. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to take your word, apply it deeply into our hearts and lives, even as we face this new week. In Jesus' name, amen.